0: Hello, and welcome to Endnotes. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books on politics, policy, and more, all written by faculty and researchers at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. I'm Rose Huber, and joining me today is Doug Massey, a sociologist and scholar whose work centers on international migration. Doug is the Henry G. Bryant Professor of Sociology and Public Affairs at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Today, we're going to talk about a volume that Doug put together that covers immigration, nativism, and race in the United States, which are all extremely relevant to today's policy debates. The essays in the spring issue of Daedalus seek to understand how America arrived at its current crossroads in politics. It was published by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Doug, thanks so much for joining the show.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: So I think before we get into the heart of the volume's findings, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about your involvement with the volume and just maybe a brief history on its publication.
1: Well, I'm a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and I've done uh, edited volumes for them before. Uh, one was on uh, immigration, but that was about 10 years ago, and the landscape had changed quite a bit. So the, the Academy asked me if I would be willing to put together another issue of Daedalus on uh, more contemporary issues related to immigration. This was about two years ago. They planned that far ahead. And uh, uh, I thought that uh, uh, racism and xenophobia were coming strong, coming on strong in um, the Trump era. And I wanted to put together a volume of, uh, by, of articles by people that I knew and respected as researchers, who had been studying the relationship between racism, xenophobia, and immigration and immigration policies in the United States. And that's how the volumes got started.
0: Perfect. We'll be sure to link to the the ten year version in the show notes as well, just for a little history. So, in this version of the journal. You argue that white nationalist sentiments became particularly explicit after the election of Donald Trump. I think we all saw that happen. How did the country see this unfold and how exactly did it bleed into immigration and border policy specifically?
1: Well, race has always been a big divide in the United States. The Republican Party, starting with President Nixon, was really quite deliberate in using race as a tool to divide the old Democratic coalition that supported the New Deal and peel off the South and blue-collar workers in the North. So race has really been a a fundamental part of American politics for a long time. But what changed was uh, the use of Latinos and the racialization of Latinos as a population. And this dates to 1965 as the origins when U.S. immigration law changed. And for the first time in in U.S. history, uh, the U.S. imposed numerical limits on immigration from countries in the Western Hemisphere. And about the same time, they canceled a, a guest worker program with Mexico that had been in operation for 22 years. Uh, and at its height, it was bringing in 450,000 guest workers every year for temporary work in the United States. And given there, there was no numerical limitations on permanent immigration, Mexico is uh, sending about 50,000 migrants uh, p- uh, permanent residents every year. But both flows were really uh, heavily circular, and there was little population growth that, that came from it. Uh, but when 1965 happened and the opportunities for legal entry basically evaporated, the flows simply re-established themselves fairly quickly uh, under undocumented auspices. So between 1965 and 1979, you see an, a steady increase in border apprehensions and undocumented migration. And this really set off uh, what later came to be called the Latino threat narrative. Really, nothing had changed very much between nineteen pre-1965 and post-1965. Something uh, basic had changed, and that was the legal status of the people coming in. And so when you switched from legal entries to predominantly undocumented entries, the narrative got started because these were illegal migrants. And if they're illegal migrants, then by definition, they're criminals and lawbreakers. And this set up a, a dynamic in which uh, uh, they were... Um, Portrayed as a grave threat to the United States, with the meanings clustering around the trope of illegality. And if you noticed uh, that uh, when Donald Trump announced his uh, presidential bid in the Trump Hotel, he referred explicitly and, uh, and openly to Mexicans as rapists and criminals. And that led off the campaign and made it an explicit part. And uh, obviously, wanted to build a border wall, even though at the point uh, he was annou- making his announcement, uh, undocumented migration from Mexico had been negative for about 12 years. And uh, the, the undocumented portion, the, the, and the Mexican portion of the undocumented population was actually declining. At the point uh, that he made this announcement.
0: Yeah, I remember that really vividly. It's amazing the power that words like that can have over the course of years. Well, you mentioned that, you know, race has long been used as a tool. And I think the essays in the volume we've put together here sort of affirm that America's racism has been long rooted. Are there other historical moments that back this up in addition to the, the 1965 example you just used? So in other words, should we have seen this moment of today coming?
1: Yes. If you look at U.S. history, there are two conditions that really predict a backlash against immigration and a rise in xenophobia. And the two conditions are uh, rapid demographic change because of immigration. And the second one is uh, a rise in economic insecurity and inequality. And when those two things coincide in time, then you get an uprising. The first one was the so-called Know-Nothing Movement in the 1850s. Uh, and there it was a rapid demographic change from Catholic immigration, Irish and, Ger- and Germans from the southern part of Germany in the 1840s were coming in in large numbers. Uh, and it corresponded with a decline in the GDP per capita uh, and so that was the first one. During one downturn in the 1880s, there was the, the United Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Acts. These basically banned Chinese immigration to the United States for the next 100 years. Uh, and it was, that wasn't changed until 1965, uh, when, um, the, the Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed. Uh, and then, of course, the, uh, most recent one before the current age, was um, in the 1920s, and there it was a there, there was a, a recession after the end of the First World War, and about the same time, quota laws were first passed in 1920 and 1924, and these were deliberately targeted to eliminate or restrict the entry of Southern and Eastern Europeans, and this was a reaction against rapid demographic change in the context of inequality, rising inequality. And the demographic change was the Jews and Catholics, Catholics from Italy and Catholics from Poland and Jews from the Russian Pale and some some Orthodox Christian uh, groups from the Slavic countries. And this proved to be threatening to the Protestant ascendancy at the time.
0: So thinking about all that, how would you sort of assess where we are right now, post-Trump, Joe Biden's in office what are we looking at today? Well,
1: what we're looking at today is one of our main political parties has become explicitly white nationalist for decades from Nixon onward. It was a dog whistle that is coded words were being used to signal racial fears to to, uh, to trigger racial fears on the part of white Americans. Nixon did this by talking about crime uh Ronald Reagan did it by talking about welfare queens and then uh George Bush I had his famous Willie Horton commercial. Uh, And uh, so uh, uh, these and uh, George Bush II appointed an avowed neo Confederate to be Attorney General of the United States. Uh, But there was nothing open said about this. And Trump threw away the dog whistle and immediately announced his disdain for Mexicans and Latin Americans in general and and Muslim immigrants and basically used the border as a framing device, a dividing line that needed to be defended against uh, all threats to the United States. And that resonated with a lot of people. And uh, it really kind of pulled the cork out of the bottle. And if the president of the United States says Mexicans are criminals and need to be banned, then uh, other people felt free to finally Announced their intentions, which had been some submerged and hidden for for a long time, and a lot of resentment poured out.
0: How, how do you explain that shift in the Republican Party, or can you?
1: Well, they started down this road, and it just kept leading them further and further uh, into uh, the territory of xenophobia, fear of the, the racialized other. The racialized other changed over time. I think it was triggered by the realization with Obama's election that the country had really changed. And we had a black president, we had Latina Supreme Court justices, uh, women were in prominent positions, uh, and white men felt the loss. And and it caused, a, it caused a reaction. And so the other thing that was happening at the same time was that, that Americans fi- really came to realize that the, fu- the population was fundamentally changed by the rising proportion of Latinos in the United States, mm. uh, which had basically rocketed from 4.7% of the US population in 1970 to about 18.7% today, and they became the largest minority group in the United States. And it became very clear, just looking at birth statistics, uh, uh, demographic statistics that were popularized in public writings about a minority explosion, a diversity explosion, a coming end to white America, uh, all those uh, tropes were in the media. And I, I think it really unsettled the especially older white Americans in the baby boom years.
0: So do you think that explains how the fear mongering by Republicans first focused on blacks and then it shifted to the Hispanic population? Would you say that's why that shift occurred? Or is there more factors that were part of that? what it, it,
1: well, it didn't shift. It, it broadened.
0: Oh, broadened. So, okay.
1: So there, there's still a lot of anti-black animosity. True. Yes. Very, very clearly, and uh, they they began to focus more and more attention on Hispanics as well. And uh, at the at the time I put this volume together, I was just beginning to see that Asians were starting to get into the picture uh, mm. as uh, objects of resentment, white resentment, uh, not because they were ta- uh, they they were criminals, but because they were in elite positions that uh, put them in between the populace of the United States and its power structures. They were professional scientists and and upper middle class people. And that generated a lot of resentment. That uh, really came to the fore in the last year or so. And we've seen with the the killings in Atlanta. And now we see a kind of uh, combination of longstanding racial animus against blacks, uh, more recent but uh, still very powerful a- animus towards Latinos, and a submerged, uh, what had been a submerged animus against Asians becoming very open.
0: I know you probably don't have all the answers here, but where do you think this resentment is coming from in terms of white Americans? I mean, maybe. Some of the work that Angus, Deaton, and Anne Case have done on rising uh, mortality rates plays a role, I'm sure. But can you speculate as to why Americans are harboring such resentment?
1: It's, it's It comes from feelings of insecurity on the part of uh, especially non-college educated Americans, especially white non-college educated Americans, and especially male non-college educated white Americans. Because in fact, inequality has increased. Economic insecurity has increased. The middle class has been hammered. And at the same time, this occurs at the same time that race, uh, the racial composition is changing. And it sets up a dynamic where it becomes easy for entrepreneurial politicians to demonize immigrants and blacks and minorities as the reason for the economic pain they're feeling. And it displaces the anger towards these supposed others instead of white guys in suits living in Manhattan and working in the, the securities industry. It's not hard to understand uh, how and why this this happened.
0: It's true. It is sort of right in front of us. You know, you used a term in the journal that I hadn't heard before, cremigation. What does that mean exactly?
1: Crimigation is a a term that came about in the last 10 years or so as, uh, uh, undocumented migration became more and more prominent in the news. The country turned more and more conservative and xenophobia rose. And to politicians played this up and to, to counter the perceived threat of Latino migration in the United States, imposed ever more restrictive immigration and border policies and ended up passing laws against all kinds of things that in that are part of the immigration process that had either been misdemeanors or not even illegal at all before so a good example would be if you have a brother and he looks just like you you can send your green card down to him and your brother can come into the United States without uh, authorization uh, on your brother's green green card uh, and in the past if you got caught you would, the 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 green card would be confiscated and, and the guy would be sent back to, to Mexico or wherever. Uh, but now it's been criminalized. So it, it becomes document fraud and uh, identity theft and it becomes a felony in the U.S. system. It's a simple act of crossing the border without authorization, which was a civil infraction, has also been criminalized. If you are, if you repeat uh, an attempt to cross into the United States after being apprehended once, that is now a felony. So more and more of the process of immigration, the unauthorized portion, portion of the immigration, has shifted from either being a non-criminal act or a civil uh, civil infraction to being a felony crime. And this only adds to the, the perception of immigrants as criminals. The people haven't changed. The, pro- pro- uh, the processes haven't changed. What changed was the law and not the immigration process itself. Data reliably show that immigrants have lower crime rates than natives.
0: I was just about to ask what the effects were of, of that practice. So you think you kind of get into anything else Anything else to add in terms of the effects?
1: No, it's just part and parcel of this um, steamroller of a threat narrative that, that kept growing over time. And it, it became self-reinforcing because uh, on the border, The more money and personnel you put into border enforcement, the more apprehensions you get. And even though the number of undocumented entries really stabilized around 1979 or 1980, apprehensions kept going up. So every year, apprehensions would rise, the Border Patrol would uh, call a press conference and... Brief Congress and say we need more money for border enforcement. They would get more money for border enforcement, and that would produce more arrests. And then they would turn around and say, "See, the alien invasion is growing. We need more border enforcement." And it just became a self-perpetuating cycle that reinforced the whole criminality element. And then, as the as border enforcement failed to deter people, then uh, the undocumented population actually started growing because uh, by by making border crossing. Very difficult and expensive and uh, very dangerous, driving up the death rate along the border. Migrants did the logical thing. They minimized border crossing. And they did this not by staying in Mexico and not coming to the jobs they knew existed in the United States, where they'd probably been going for many years. They just stopped going back home and they stayed longer and longer north of the border. And so the net effect of the Militarization of the Mexico-US border during the 1990s was to reduce the rate of return migration back to Mexico while having little or no effect on the rate of in migration from Mexico. And net migration equals in migration minus out migration. So you basically, uh, we're spending $3 billion a year to accelerate the rate of undocumented population growth, which of course exacerbated the tensions.
0: Wow. Well, What's the way forward from here, especially for those who lack legal status in the United States? What options do they have at this point?
1: Well, their options are few and far between unless uh, Congress really acts. Obama did what he could with uh, executive orders, but that's very perilous. So there's a large population of people that uh, have been in the United States for a long time now. The Mexican portion, uh, Mexican undocumented migration really came to a, an abrupt halt around 2008 when the Great Recession set in. But the, it's really, Mexican immigration is really part of a larger decline. The undocumented population, undocumented migration was falling beginning around the year 2000 because of the demographic transition in Mexico. So the fertility rate in around 1970 in Mexico was about six children per woman. And today it's 2.1 children per woman, which is uh, below replacement level so uh, the people that were entering in the 1990s were people who were born in the 1970s and there were lots of them and the mexican labor force was growing the average age was was about 22 or 23 which is the peak for labor market uh, labor migration but in subsequent decades the mexican population really started to age and the and the average age in mexico has risen to about 29 years now 29 years old and labor migration really happens between the ages of say 18 and 30 and And it peaks at around 22 or 23 and then declines rapidly. And after age 30, the odds of migration are very low. So Mexico basically aged out of the migrant prone, prone years and migration came to a stop on its own accord. So in, in a sense, we've, it's, we've. Got less pressure from Mexico than, and than we have in the past. And even now, the the number of apprehensions of Mexicans, which have come up a little bit, are still nowhere near they were a decade or two ago. So in, in essence, what we have now is, uh, on the border is what had been this huge inflow of male workers from Mexico has been replaced by a much smaller inflow of families, uh, women and children from Central America who are not coming for jobs so much as coming for refuge. And uh, the Trump administration basically treated them as criminals. And uh, people coming for refuge and seeking asylum have the right under U.S. law to show up at a border crossing, a port of entry, and request uh, uh, asylum. And yeah. uh, under our own laws, they're supposed to be taken in and have their asylum case adjudicated. And But instead of doing that, the Trump administration just threw them back into Mexico and then um, they languished in Mexico for a while, and uh, many got desperate and simply crossed without uh, authorization. And then, instead of trying to escape, captured by the by the immigration authorities, they actually looked to turn themselves in, so they could claim asylum. And if you claim mm-hmm. asylum while you're at a legal crossing point at a port of entry, it's called affirmative asylum. And if you claim asylum while you're when you're unauthorized in, in the United States, it becomes defensive asylum. We were claiming asylum to uh, prevent a deportation, Uh, and then when that didn't, that led to a surge in apprehensions of Central Americans along the border. Then they stopped. They even streamlined the deportation of people uh, who were trying to claim defensive asylum and just threw them back into Mexico. Now Biden is trying to roll back those policies, but we've got a a buildup of people who were who were claiming who wanted to claim asylum who are now showing up again. And I really think the, there are two things we need to do to, to alleviate the situation. First is we need to find a pathway to legal status for the 11 million people who are currently out of status. And we have to realize that the bulk of this population has now been here for 15 or 20 years. And the mass deportation regime we unleashed uh, is becoming very damaging to, to our own population, our own, our own future, because now, after 12- 15, 20 years of residence in the United States, the average household headed by an undocumented migrant has U.S. citizen children. Mm-hmm. And when you deport a parent, you really harm the next generation of Americans. And there are about six or 700,000 native born American citizen kids in Mexico now, away from the U.S. education and health system uh, with their uh, deported parents. And uh, they're not fitting in well in Mexico. They don't speak Spanish. They're not really Mexicans. They are b- uh, bullied in the school system. But they're going to return to the United States someday without the education and health they would have had had they been able to stay. So the more, longer this goes on, the worse it's going to get. And, the, and if we could legalize this population, that uh, that malady would end. And uh, another thing would happen would be that if once they became legal residents, and ultimately if they're able to become citizens, then you have a way of processing the asylum seekers coming into the United States across the border. Uh, so two things need to happen, a legalization program for those uh, here who have no criminal record and the vast majority do not. And finally, coming to honor our own laws about asylum please and realizing that the people that are coming from uh, for asylum from Central America are coming to the United States because the U.S really interceded militarily and politically in the region in the 1980s, wrecked up the economies, and in, introduced a, what turned out to be endemic violence into the re- region. And so we have a, a certain moral responsibility because we really messed up those countries in the 1980s. At, along the border, this uh, the entry of Central Americans is pictured as something brand new. It really begins uh, after 1980, and the numbers that were coming in in the 1980s and 1990s were actually larger than they are now, but they were dwarfed by the by the many, many, many more Mexicans who are coming in. And now the Mexicans have essentially disappeared from the cross-border population. The Central Americans are uh, obvious and the only ones really left. And it's become a new narrative, a new invasion, but it, but it's not new.
0: That's interesting. And I, I don't think I was fully aware of that, but I'm curious how confident you are in the in- in the Biden administration in terms of tackling some of this and maybe even changing the narrative?
1: Well, it's a very delicate line. The seeming chaos on the border doesn't help help the situation and and will make it harder to uh, achieve immigration reform. Even though the problems along the border are largely self-inflicted wounds, they still resonate with people and they see these things going along the border and it seems like things are out of control when they're not really out of control at all and and they never really have been out of control uh they just appear that way because of the responses that that we that we exercise when you exercise massive force to uh, solve problems that are really kind of labor market in orientation or humanitarian in orientation they usually end up backfiring which is what happened earlier and what's happening now i have some faith that they'll uh Biden administration will move in the direction of immigration reform. I don't think the Republicans will cooperate at all because they've gone down a path to where their base is rapidly xenophobic and anti-immigrant, and they seem to be more afraid of their base than uh, anything else. So it's going to be very hard for Republicans to support immigration reform.
0: Right. I wanted to know before we wrap up, are there other policy implications that the volume offers in addition to those two main points you sort of just brought up or anything else you wanted to say about the volume as an entity as if people want to give it a read after this discussion?
1: Well, the volume is really a comprehensive analysis of how we got to the situation we are today and how it's playing out in different populations, focusing on blacks and the role of skin color, uh, looking at Latinos, of course, as as the poster children for undocumented migrants, but also touching on Asians. Uh, there was a good article, presciently seeing the outbreak of anti-Asian violence we're seeing today. The authors that uh, uh, I chose for the volume really are are some of the best people in the country working on these issues across a variety of different disciplines, uh, from political science to sociology to economics and and anthropology and political science. So uh, I think it's a uh, It'd be a worthwhile read if you really want to understand the background of how we got to this, this unfortunate position of, of white nationalism taking over one of our main parties.
0: And that issue of Dataless is available now through the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. It's the spring issue. We'll be sure to link to it. Doug, anything else before we close out today? We're just about out of time.
1: Well, I just like to remind Americans that we're we're all immigrants in origin and and we tend to forget uh, and mythologize the past. But uh, today's immigrants are really not much different from the immigrants in the past.
0: Yeah, it's a really good point to remember as we close out today. Well, Doug, thanks again for joining me. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks for bringing attention to the volume.
0: Course. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in to Endnotes today, which is currently available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. This show is edited and produced by me, Rose Huber, and we also want to thank our visual designer, Egan Jimenez. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to Endnotes, a series produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. The content you've just heard does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or Princeton SPIA.